You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. We are following John's gospel through this year. And we're not going to finish John's gospel this year, though. Let me just go ahead and tell you that. (laughs) Only because we're going to get up to the point in a few weeks up to Jesus's point of crucifixion, but we're going to wait. And next spring, at Palm Sunday and Easter and following, that's when we're going to hone in on those last uh, chapters of John. But we're still there for a few weeks, and we're starting John chapter 18 today. In John chapter 18, Jesus is just moments away from going to the cross to suffer and to die in our place for our sins. All of the Bible and all of human history has been slowly, carefully, methodically, intentionally gaining momentum toward this event where Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior, is ultimately going to hang on a cross. John 18 starts with an unholy alliance. You'll see that in just a moment. Here's how John 18 begins. When he, that is Jesus, had finished praying. So we spent four weeks looking at Jesus' prayer. He prayed for himself. He prayed for believers. He prayed for those yet to be believers. When he had finished praying... Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches lanterns, and weapons. This is darkness. This is all happening at night. It's under the cover of darkness, so it is physical darkness being at night, and it's also spiritual darkness. Jesus is with his 11 disciples. Judas is gone. All the way back in John 13, verse 27, we read that Satan has filled Judas. And Judas departed. You know, much of the life and ministry of Jesus is found in the first half of John's gospel. Uh, You can almost say from, from birth to age 33 is the first half of John's gospel. The second half of John's gospel is the final week of Jesus' life. So Jesus is with his 11. Judas has gone to betray. They, as the group of 11 and Jesus, are now going under the cover of darkness at night through the Kidron Valley, and they're headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. And John reports it all because he was there. Here is an eyewitness. John will include for us today some details that we would not otherwise ever have known. You know, there are four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three are referred to as the synoptic 
gospel. Synoptic is a Greek word, and it literally means seen together or seen alike. Because from those three gospels, 60% of their content is similar. John, his gospel is written last. And John wrote to fill in things that might have been missing that God wanted to make sure were included in the record of Jesus. 90% of John is unique. And you wouldn't find it anywhere else in the history of the world. He was there. And he writes for us an eyewitness account of the excruciating detail of Jesus' final hours. And what we see here as well is that they are headed to the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus and his disciples would often go. There they would pray, they would worship, they would meet with God. Maybe even plan for ministry uh, for the times that they are in that area of Jerusalem. But now, Judas Iscariot, he is going to take this place that was used as a meeting place for God and turn it into a place to arrest God. And he forms an unholy alliance. An unholy alliance is where people who are not aligned together come together for a common enemy. Here John mentions Roman soldiers, religious leaders. The Romans and the religious, they don't get along. They constantly annoyed one another. There was ongoing escalating friction between these two groups. And Judas brings these two groups together for a common alliance. It's unholy. It's demonic. Again, we already know from John 13, 27 that Satan fills Judas. So everything that Judas plots and plans is demonic. And when he brings together the religious leaders and the Roman leaders, what he's bringing together are two factions that have one thing in common. Jesus cannot be an authority. You see, in declaring himself God, Jesus was already a threat to the religious leadership and the Roman leadership. He was putting himself over Caesar. He was putting himself over the religious leaders. And they both conspired together to take him down all the way to the grave. This is a battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. A battle that started in heaven when Satan declared war against God, lost, it was cast out. And now he's working with Judas who has joined forces with the fallen angels and the demons. And Satan is making a second run at a coup attempt to overthrow and overtake Jesus Christ as Lord. And Judas here represents all that is covert and sneaky and dishonest. He's one of those guys that you don't know who he really is until it's too late. Judas comes with all these soldiers this had to be a terrifying moment for the 11 disciples. And Judas betrays Jesus. Now, there's a big difference between failing and betraying. Next week, we're going to learn more about Peter, who 
fails Jesus, Judas betrays Jesus. We all fail. You can still have a relationship with somebody who fails you. Betrayal is deeper. Betrayal is, is plotted. It, it's sinister. It's demonic. Failure is, I love you, but I've done wrong to you. Betrayal is, I don't love you, and all along I'm plotting harm against you. This had to be an astounding moment for these 11. On one side is Jesus and the 11. On the other side are hundreds of soldiers. And who is with them? Judas. He's the leader, the coordinator, the the plotter. He is covert and he is evil. The Roman leaders, they trusted in power. The religious leaders, they trusted in power. It's the one thing they have in common. The religious leaders want spiritual authority. The Romans want legal, state authority. And if you're here and your whole thing is power and control and authority, well, that's Judas and those aligned with him. Judas is also a lover of money. And he sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. In this instance, not only do we see who Jesus is, we see who we are So, as always, put yourself in the story. Now, let me be really clear. You cannot be Jesus in this story. (laughs) You can be one of the disciples. You can be impetuous Peter. You can be betrayer Judas. You can be one of the soldiers that are opposing him. You can be one of the elitist religious leaders. And there's Jesus. What's he going to do? It's interesting because he's been praying with them and for them, preparing them, and now the moment has come. By the way, it's mentioned here that the Pharisees are a group that are opposing Jesus. There were actually four major religious groups operating within first century Israel. Let me briefly describe each one. One group is the Zealots. For them, every answer was political. We need to overthrow the Roman government. We need to rise up and revolt. We need to get our leader in position to advocate for our vision, our values. We just need political answers. Sound familiar? If that's you, you're paying more attention to the news way more than you are to the Bible. The second group were the Sadducees. They were the liberals, the progressives. When there was cultural pressure, they would simply alter, change their beliefs. They had fear of man, not fear of God. So if you came to a Sadducee and there was some cultural issue that was opposed to God's word, they would simply edit God's word so they'd be pleasing to the people. (laughs) They wanted to please people and not please God. The third group were the Essenes. They're kind of like the charismatic or Pentecostals. 
They are sick of earthly things, so they want to concentrate solely on heavenly things. All of their life was prayer meetings, worship conferences, angels, speaking in tongues, prophecy. Hey, we're going to just pay attention to the Lord and forget everyone and everything else. And if that's you, you're like, yeah, I'm just doing spiritual things and I already know when Jesus is coming back anyhow. And then the fourth group are the Pharisees. They were the conservatives. So you think, okay, wait a minute. There are four bad teams? Yeah, that's why Jesus had to come. Because these teams are not the solution. These teams are the problem. The Pharisees were the conservatives, the traditionalists. They started with good intent. People have been straying from the laws of God. So we need to get them back to the Bible. We need to teach them what the word of God says. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, that's a good thing. Except they end up murdering Jesus. (laughs) I'm a Bible teacher, so I'd probably be in the Pharisee camp. The apostle Paul was on that team until Jesus saved him. The problem was they didn't just go back to the Bible. They went beyond the Bible. The heart of the Pharisee is this. God has laws and so do we. Well, that's a problem. And we will enforce God's laws and we will enforce our laws. In fact, we'll put our laws on the same level as God's laws. Maybe some of us do that. And Jesus shows up, and the problem they have with Jesus is that he's not biblical enough. (laughs) You know, we've got a problem when you're more conservative than God. Which team would you be on? The story continues. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, you know, God knows all, sees all, went out and asked them, Who is it that you want? Previously in John's gospel, they would seek to arrest him. Crowds would harass him. Mobs would come up against him. And and Jesus, we'd see him withdraw. Just supernaturally, just slip away. But here, he steps forward. He knows it's his time. It shows that Jesus is the one in authority. He sets the time and the place. Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. In fact, in the Greek, it's just I am. I am, Jesus said. And Judas the the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell on the ground. Now, this is amazing. I wonder if any of them thought, maybe we're on the wrong team. (laughs) And again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, 
then let these men go. You know you have authority when you can tell unbelieving men what to do. Now here we find two names for Jesus. First, he calls himself the I am. Now the religious leaders know exactly what that name means. All the way back in Exodus, God's people are under bondage in Egypt and God raises up Moses to lead the people out. He, Moses is a type of Jesus. He stands against an evil empire, an empire of darkness and commands that God's people be set free to worship. This is about liberation and deliverance and all of this comes to a head when Moses and God are having a conversation Moses is having a conversation with a bush. It's God. And Moses asks, who should I say is sending me? God says, tell Pharaoh, I am is sending you. And here Jesus says, I am. Oh, you're the God of Moses. You're the God of deliverance. You're the God that overran the nation of Egypt. You're here to establish your kingdom. The second name that was used is Jesus of Nazareth. There is supernatural, unprecedented authority in the name of Jesus. This is why we pray in the name of Jesus. This is why we don't talk about some generalized, marginalized, meaningless, uninvolved God. Our God has a name. His name is Jesus. Earlier in John, in chapter 14, Jesus said this about his name. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. We pray in Jesus' name. We ask in Jesus' name. We exercise spiritual authority in Jesus' name. When we speak the name of Jesus, not only do people hear, but powers, principalities, and spirits are put on notice. The king has come in his authority. The name of Jesus is the strongest name. The name of Jesus is the greatest name. The name of Jesus is the truest name. Here's how the Apostle Paul says it in Philippians 2, verses 8 through 10. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's Jesus. (laughs) Well, now enters Peter. Peter is a situation all to himself. You find in Peter, you never have to worry about what this guy is thinking, right? He's always speaking and acting without thinking. 
here's verse 10. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword. Okay, these disciples, or at least Peter, is packing. They're in North Carolina. It's open carry. But he's a fisherman. Why does he have a sword? What's up with that? This is not smart is what this is. A whole detachment of trained soldiers and Peter pulls out a sword. He drew it and struck the high priest's servant. This is a slave. He doesn't even want to be there. He's probably the only guy who doesn't have a sword. And Peter cuts off his right ear. You know what that is? That's a miss. You know, tough guys say, uh, heads will roll. No, 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 I'm going the ear. Nobody does that. The servant's name was Malchus. Hey, he made the Bible. (laughs) And people say, the Bible is made up. You can't make this stuff up. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Let's talk a little bit about Peter. At this point, he's been with Jesus for three years. Three years, 24-7 as a disciple. And this is mature Peter. How many of you would say, well... I've been a follower of Jesus a lot longer than that. I've done some really dumb stuff. Well, there's hope for all of us. And here's the heart of Peter. God, you need help. Good thing I'm here. God, things aren't going so well. I got this. How many of us do this? All of us, all the time. And Peter overreacts. Do we have any of those among us today? You don't even have to raise your hand. Now, other gospels will carry this story with Malchus and Peter one moment further. You know what Jesus does for Malchus? He picks up his ear and he heals him. I love what Jesus is doing here. He is being really gracious to everyone. He doesn't call on angels to strike dead the soldiers. He heals Malchus, even though Malchus is opposing him. And he even teaches Peter, because in this moment, should it be about Peter or should it be about Jesus? It should be about Jesus. But what is Peter making it about? Himself. We all do this. All the time. The story continues. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him, brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man, Jesus, died for the people. Let's go back and pick up something that Jesus said in verse 11. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? 
let's talk about this because this is kind of strange language. Drink the cup. What's that all about? This is the cup of the wrath of God. If you want to do a, a little deeper dive Bible study, go to places like Isaiah 51 or Jeremiah 25. The Old Testament speaks of God's wrath in terms of a cup. Let me tell you about the wrath of God. The wrath of God is a very significant theme throughout Scripture. The wrath of God appears some 600 times in the Old Testament in some 200 different terms. God's wrath is poured out on nations. God's wrath is poured out on sinful, rebellious individuals. God's wrath is his justice. Now, the, one, the number one attribute of God, spoken of more than anything, is his holiness. He is perfect. We are not. And because we are not in God's holiness, in God's perfection, there has to be justice. There has to be wrath. And the wrath of God is not only in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it also speaks of the wrath of God. Let me give you an example from Colossians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul says, put to death... Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Some people say, I don't see how God could send people to hell. Well, my question is, how could God take people to heaven who are so bad? If God is perfect and heaven is perfect and we are imperfect, why do we think we should expect to be there with him forever? Here at this arrest of Jesus, two things are exposed. The goodness of God and the fallenness of all humanity. This is the cup Jesus is talking about. The other gospels reveal that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was anxious. Rightly so. He was facing the weight of the sin of the entire world. And he was sweating drops of blood. His disciples had all fallen asleep. Jesus is praying. And while in the Garden of Gethsemane, do you remember what he prays? Father, let this cup pass from me. That's the cup of wrath. Yet not my will be done, but thy will be done. Jesus knows that he's going to the cross. And on that, on that cross, he will drink the cup of the wrath of God. Jesus does what is best for us. See, you have been saved if you're a Christian. You have been saved from the wrath of God. You are saved from the wrath of God by the love of God for the glory of God. When Jesus went to the cross, there was a cup 
filled with all of your sin and all of your faults and all of your failures and all of your rebellion. And Jesus drank every drop of it. Jesus took your place. Jesus endured your wrath. My great honor is to tell you the truth. Your great responsibility is to make the most important decision you will ever make. And that is, will I trust Jesus drank that cup or will I choose to drink it myself? Everyone fills a cup and every cup will be emptied. Either Jesus already drank it or you will drink it. And to that, God offers an invitation. You need not drink the cup because Jesus has already taken it on. That means there is salvation for you. That means there is an eternal relationship with God for you. Jesus, that's all you need to know. Jesus, that's all you need to believe. Jesus, that's all you need to trust. He died and he rose and he returned to his throne in glory. And one day he is coming back and will establish a kingdom that will never end. And in that kingdom, there won't be any more demons. There won't be any more rebellion. There won't be any more sin. There won't be any more justice. There won't be any more darkness. There will only be Jesus and his people. And he's going to just keep filling your cup with blessing. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.